Morning, church. It's good to see you guys. Um, I'm going to begin with a rhetorical question. I tell you it's rhetorical because I do not want you shouting out your answers. Here's my question. Where do you go for truth? CNN? Fox? I do not want you shouting out your answers. You, you go to, to the school system for truth? Do you, do you, do you go to your, your friend, the conspiracy theorist, for truth? Where do you get truth? One of the things that has really sort of hit our society, especially since the time of COVID. Uh, when COVID hit, it was not only a health crisis, but it was also a political crisis, right? And so, so there was a whole lot of political maneuvering going on around it. And, and, and I really came to the conclusion that when it came to any of that stuff, I just had no idea whether what I was reading was true or not, whether what I was hearing was true or not. Um, and I really just sort of had a renewed commitment that um, I'm not going to be positive that anything is true unless I read it in this book. Because uh, it becomes really, really difficult to figure out what is true in a society today where everything seems to be tainted with opinions and agendas, right? And so um, I just was thinking this week about how much I love the Word of God. How incredible it is to have this book. Not just a book, but 66 books, right? All put together in one place. By, by dozens of different authors written over thousands of years, and yet without contradiction, without error, without falsehood, and all of it coming together inspired by the very spirit of God himself. This book is not only a source of truth, this book is, is the measuring stick of truth. It's against the truth of this book that we can measure every other claim out there, right? And, and it's not only a source of wisdom, it is a source of ultimate wisdom. You can live for 200 years on this earth and not gather as much wisdom as you'll find in one chapter of the book of Proverbs. You, you get wisdom, you get truth, you get encouragement for the faint-hearted, you get conviction for those of us who are going astray, you get direction for your life, all of it is found in this book. The Bible, the Word of God is awesome. And yet, we tend to take it for granted. In fact, some of us really don't read it much. It, it, it tends to sit on our shelves and and gather dust. Uh, some of us have decided that it's kind of boring. It's just an ancient book. It's not really relevant to what's going on in my life today. And so it gathers dust on our shelves. And as long as it gathers dust and goes unread and goes unapplied in our lives, guess what? It will continue to be irrelevant to your daily life. That's a fact. The Bible is food for the mind and the soul. And yet, you can have a refrigerator packed with food, and if you don't open it and eat it, you get no nourishment, right? 
So we have to be dining on the word of God. You have to eat it to get the nourishment that it provides. So if today you need to be admonished to blow the dust off your Bible and begin to read it again and begin to study it, then praise God you're here. Let that count as your admonishment. But even for those of us who are huge fans of the Bible, even for those of us who do read God's word on a daily basis, even for those of us who value the Bible and we believe that it's truly the word of God, even for us, more and more, um, we tend to dismiss it when it doesn't fit our view of things. And, And more and more, as a society, it has been decided that the Bible doesn't fit our view of things. And uh, as, our, as our society becomes increasingly secular in its thinking, it doesn't fit. And so we read it, we come across challenging passages, and we find a way to avoid applying it in our lives because we just go, well, that's kind of an ancient idea that doesn't really, really hold true in our lives today. For, for example, Bible says that uh, we are to give sacrificially. We're supposed to live in generosity. And we say, yeah, but right now, um, money is really tight, so I'm not gonna be able to really be generous until my finances get more in shape. The Bible uh, calls us to remain sexually pure, and we say, yeah, but in these days, those people were getting married at like 14, 15 years old, right? That was easy. Now today, people are getting married at 30 and 40 years old. Nobody can realistically expect someone to maintain any level of sexual purity in their lives for that long, right? Or can you really expect a person to stay monogamously committed to one person for the rest of their life after the point of marriage? I mean, that's ridiculous. And so when we look at that, we go, that's not relevant. That's not gonna be applied. We're gonna live in a different way. The Bible says that we're to love our enemies, and we say, yeah, but not the ones that have been really mean to us, right? The Bible says that we're to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding. But how many times in my life do I go, yeah, but in this situation, my understanding is right, so I'm just going to kind of follow my own understanding regardless of what the Bible says, For too many of us, our view of the Bible is filled with yeah buts. And the question placed before us is, if this is in fact the word of God, then why do I ignore it? And if it's not God's word, why do I even mess with it at all? So with that as our introduction... We're going to dive back into the book of 1 Peter. If you've been with us these last couple of months, we've been in the book of 1 Peter. If you brought a Bible with you, it's toward the very back of your Bible. If you have an electronic device with a Bible on it, you can find it very easily. Just type in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 2 and get into chapter 3 today. So I want to invite you to turn there. Um, and, And I want to remind you that last week, we got into, in 1 Peter chapter 2, what I call the dreaded S word. Anybody remember what the S word is? Submission. submission. We don't like that word. We don't like this idea that I'm supposed to submit to somebody else, and all of us kind of cringe and tighten up when we hear that word. Um, and, and, and we're left with this question. 
Are we willing to submit to God by submitting to his word or not? Now, the key to understanding what Peter has to say on this topic is back in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, uh, and let me remind you of it. 1 Peter 2, 13 says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every institution. That's what this whole section of 1 Peter is going to be about. Not the next 20, 25, 30 verses, something like that. He's going to be unpacking what that looks like practically in our lives. And he he says, we're to submit ourselves, remember, for the Lord's sake. In other words, if I'm a follower of Jesus, this is not so much an issue of me submitting to the governing authorities. It's not so much about me submitting to my boss or submitting in my family or something like that. It's really about me submitting to God. And if I admit that he's God and I'm not, then I have got to be a person who comes under his authority. And sometimes his authority tells me to do things that that go against leaning on my own understanding. And especially in a day and age where as a society, we have gradually for decades now been just moving further and further and further and further from God's word. And as we move further and further from God's word, our common sense as a society becomes further and further and further from God's word. And then we read things in God's word that don't match up with our societal norms and values. And we go, wow, this is such an outdated book. I I wish they would come out with an updated version, right? And, And we tend to look at it that way. So this whole section of 1 Peter is about this issue of being people who are submissive. And I want to remind us all, he's going to give specific examples. If you're in this walk of life, be submissive in this way. If you're in this situation, be submissive in that way. If this is your story, be submissive in that way. But all of it is merely application to this thing where he says in verse 13, let us all be in submission. Submission is not for other people, it's for me. And we have to remember that. So last week we saw an application of this in the workplace. Verse 18 of chapter two. Uh, this is, then we're just recovering what we talked about last week. Verse 18 of chapter two. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And in my Bible, it's the translation of the Greek word is servants. Uh, in some of your translations, the, the translation would be slaves. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. But when we look at the word slaves, most of us in modern 21st century America don't know anything about being a slave. We don't have any understanding of that idea. And so the the word servant is used, but basically we have to get beyond even our U.S. history understanding of slavery and go to all the way to first century Rome and look at what slavery was like there. In first century Rome, basically these servants or slaves were what we would call probably indentured servants in most cases. These were people who signed contracts to work for somebody and they now were committed for X number of years to work for that person in exchange for pay and food and clothing and housing and all of that kind of stuff that they were given. This is not the same as a race-based racist 
slavery system that we had in the United States for so long before it was finally abolished in the 19th century. It wasn't like that sinful practice. But slaves in Rome were socioeconomic category of people who lived lives that had limited opportunities and limited rights. They were either indentured servants who had done this as a business deal or they were captured peoples. As you know, Rome was very, very aggressively taking over land, and when they would capture people, where other armies would typically just simply wipe out the people and take their land, Rome didn't do that. Rome had a practice of actually letting the people stay in their land, which is why Israel, the nation of Israel, was still in Israel at this time, because they had let them stay in their land, and they ruled them from there, and those people were under the category of slavery as well, and so he He speaks to them in first century Rome, and depending on which stats you find, and I I looked at numerous different sources and found numerous different stats, but depending on which one you believe, somewhere in the neighborhood of half of the population of the Roman Empire was categorized as slaves. Millions and millions and millions of people. And it was to these slaves to whom Peter writes, many of whom were now Christians, and he's giving them this instruction about being submissive to their masters. And while, while, listen, there is still way too much slavery in the world today. You know that, right? You know, just because the, the types of slavery that we've seen in the past has been abolished in certain places, there is still human trafficking everywhere. There is still slavery that is based on tribalism and racism and all these kind of things around the world. There are millions and millions of slaves even today. But I bet none of you knows one. It's not in our neighborhoods. It's not in our circle of influence. We're not used to this idea. And, and so we might read this where it says, hey, uh, slaves, be submissive to your masters and go, oh, that's written to somebody else that doesn't relate to me. That's from an f- ancient time. It has nothing to do with me. Um, but remember, this is an example of the larger principle which is to be submissive in the context of the workplace. So instead of thinking of slaves and masters, maybe think of employees and employers. Maybe think of uh, employees and managers. Maybe think of that boss who is completely unreasonable that you can't stand working for. And think of that. Because Peter, when he gives this instruction, doesn't leave room for the yeah, but that's on the tips of our tongues because we want to say, yeah, but my boss is an idiot and he expects me to do stuff that I didn't sign up to do and, and he's just unreasonable. In fact, I could run this department a whole lot better than that fool. Surely, I don't need to submit to this guy, right? Look at verse 18 again. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. There goes my yeah, but. Also to those who are unreasonable. And to drive home this point even further, he uses the example of Jesus, which I think is just not fair. But he uses the example of Jesus. Look at uh, verse 21. He says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 
In other words, when, when my yeah, but is, listen, I, I, I shouldn't have to suffer. I shouldn't have to struggle. I shouldn't have to submit to somebody who's being unreasonable. He goes, yeah, um, Jesus did. And he did it as an example for us. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to, the, to the, him who judges rightly. Again, a reiteration. Our submission to people is not really a submission to that person. It's a submission to God who judges rightly. God who says, do not take revenge for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God who knows all things, including the hearts of men. And he calls us to submit to him by submitting to other people. Now, again, I feel like I want to remind you of this every time I'm preaching from 1 Peter. I warned you when we started this book. He is going to talk to us about stuff that makes us highly uncomfortable, and, and I don't have any jokes in my sermon today. I got no fun stories to tell you about my childhood growing up and how I learned these great lessons. All we're gonna do is study this passage and we're gonna shudder in the presence of God who says, I actually know better than you do. And that is why I said what I did at the beginning of the sermon about the word of God. It is truth. It is God's word. And God loves us and wants what is best for us. So when he instructs us in his word, it is not so he can squash us and hold us down. It is so he can exalt us and lift us up. But man, I lean on my own understanding and I'm like, I'm not doing this. I don't like this. And so I just want to remind us all, that's what God's going to be doing with us in these sections of 1 Peter. And, and uh, in this passage about Jesus, it says, you know, uh, they, they reviled and he didn't revile in return. They, they mistreated him and yet he accepted it and entrusted himself to his father. It, they were horrible to him. And, I, and, and we don't need to Go back through the illegal arrests and the torture and the crucifixion and all that he went through for us. They were horrible to him. And it wasn't just those Roman and Jewish leaders who treated him horribly. It was you and me who treated him horribly. Look at verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed, and you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Why was Jesus illegally arrested? Why was Jesus tortured and beaten? Why was Jesus hung on a cross and crucified unto death? Why was he laid in a tomb. It was because of my sin and yours. None of that was his own fault. It was our fault. And yet he remained submissive. First, submissive to the Father, and then by extension, submissive to the human authorities. So we have two examples of amazing submission. We have slaves who are submissive to their masters. When we go, I don't, I don't think I could do that. We have Jesus who is submissive to the Father and therefore submissive to the authorities who even crucified him. And we go, man, I don't think I could do that. 
but we're pretty much left with no grounds for our complaints or any of our yeah buts. And as we come to chapter 3, we have a third point of application with its own example. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God." Now, before we get all upset about the fact that wives are being singled out here, remember this. This is merely another application of the principle that applies to every one of us, to the married and to the unmarried, to the man and the woman, to the husband and to the wife. And, and he's speaking to wives directly about how do you live submissively in your married relationship. It's a calling that we all have from chapter two to be submissive to God by submitting to others. And so we don't get upset when we read the part about the servants being told to be submissive to their masters. Um, and, and we're very thankful when we see the part about Jesus submitting to the Father and therefore going to the cross for us. Um, but... This is not a matter of God devaluing wives. This is not a matter of God saying, you know, husbands are the boss and wives do what they say. There's none of that found anywhere in scripture. So anybody who's given you that idea or taught you that or taken verses out of context to make you think that somehow God thinks that women are less than men or that men are the bosses of the world and women are the followers, that concept does not exist in scripture. So put that out of your mind. But, but let me just tell you something. Um, this verse does not say that women are to be submissive to men. It says that specific wives are to be submissive to their specific husband. That's a very, very different statement. It's saying that a wife is called to carry out the principle of submission by submitting to her husband. It's not a matter of devaluing the wife. It's simply a matter of God-given order to help the family run smoothly. And by the way, this is not the only place. Peter didn't just run off on a tangent and go, you know what, I got this anti-woman thing and write this. But Paul does the exact same thing in Ephesians. He talks about this. You can read it at home during your quiet times this week. But in Ephesians chapter five, he does exactly the same thing. Paul does this whole thing where he says, hey, everybody, be submissive to one another. Everybody, be submissive to one another. And then he talks about how wives are to be submissive, how husbands are to be submissive, how children are to be submissive, how employees are to be submissive, how employers are to be submissive. And so, there are different applications depending on your current circumstances in your life, but all of us are called to be submissive. Submissiveness may look different for different people who find themselves in varying circumstances, but whatever the status of the Christian, the principle is still the same. Hey, Christian, be submissive. And here Peter talks about the big principle for all of us, be submissive. And then he gives the examples of servants, Jesus, wives, and husbands. And we'll get to the husbands in a minute. 
Though the roles might be different, the principle is the same. Be submissive. And the Holy Spirit, remember, the Holy Spirit, God himself inspired every word of this. And the Holy Spirit who inspired Peter's words knows that many wives find themselves in very difficult marriages. The Holy Spirit is well aware of the fact that many wives are married to men who have done little, if anything, to earn their respect. The Holy Spirit is very well aware of the abuses that go on in so many households. The Holy Spirit is very well aware of how challenging it is to, be, to have a submissive spirit towards someone who you can't really fully trust because they don't have great wisdom. They don't have a great track record. They haven't made great decisions thus far. The Spirit is very well aware of that. And so what does he say to those wives who find themselves in that situation with a husband who's not so easy to submit to. Their husbands may not be walking with Jesus. They may not be applying God's word in their lives. They may have showed an incredible lack of wisdom throughout the years. What does he say to those wives who find themselves to be in that situation? The same thing he says to the rest of us. Be submissive. I've got you, he says. You can trust me he says. He's not saying you can trust your husband. So if you're a wife, I want you to look at me right now and listen. I want to tell you something. You can't trust your husband. Okay? If you've been married for more than three minutes, you know that already, right? Your husband is imperfect, which is a bummer because all of you wives are perfect. I understand that. But but your husband is imperfect, right? And so God knows this and still says, listen, it's not about trusting your husband, it's about trusting your God. It's a massive shift of thinking and it makes all the difference in the world. He tells wives that it will be their loving and submissive spirits that will draw disobedient husbands to God. Now, I want to be absolutely crystal clear, and I made the same statement last week, but I do not want to be misunderstood. He is not saying that this negates biblical principles about appropriate boundaries in relationships. He is not condoning abuse. He is not saying to wives who are being abused, you should sit and take the abuse because after all, he's your husband and you need to be submissive to him. The whole counsel of scripture over and over and over makes it absolutely clear that that is not God's will. If you're in a situation that is genuinely abusive, you need to remove yourself for safety's sake. You need to get help. You need to get a counselor involved. You need to get the police involved. Whoever you need to get involved, he is not calling any of us to be doormats for people to have their feet wiped on. That's not what the scripture teaches. But that doesn't negate submissiveness. A submissive heart. A heart that says, my opinion's not the only opinion. A heart that says, I am willing to be more of a team player than being an individual who is out for my own goals. That submissive heart is what he's calling us to. He's not asking anyone to allow themselves to be abused. He's simply giving direction for applying the principle of submission in various roles in life. After all, Everyone's husband is a knucklehead. 
at times. Everybody's boss is a knucklehead at times. Every political leader is a knucklehead most of the time. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, sometimes can't help myself. Every church leader is a knucklehead sometimes. Every police officer is a knucklehead sometimes. Every judge is a knucklehead sometimes. Guys, we all sin. We all get stuff wrong. And every one of us is unsafe to be fully submitted to. But to submit to God, that's safe. Peter and Paul are not saying that we don't ever address those issues or that we should not get to safety or get away from an abusive situation, but they are saying that the spirit of submission should guide us even when we're submitting to knuckleheads. So to wives, he says, don't just try to be physically attractive to your husband, but far more importantly, be attractive in the inner person, in the heart in the spirit. And that's what's gonna draw your husbands to God. Verse, th- verse three, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. And again, let me just tell you, these verses get taken out of context and misunderstood so easily. When he encourages wives to have a gentle and quiet spirit, it specifically says, have a gentle and quiet spirit. It does not say, have a gentle and quiet mouth. He is not saying to wives, keep your opinion to yourself. He is saying, do not exalt yourself over anybody else and force your views on people. Do not manipulate, do not control, but instead let your spirit be quiet. And by quiet, it doesn't mean don't speak. It means at rest. It means without chaos. A gentle spirit, a quiet spirit. And so wives, he says, watch out for the inside person. And you go, okay, I don't know. I know this is a fairly convincing argument, but I still don't like it. I'm not sure I'm going to go with it. If you need an example, this one will blow your mind. Look at Sarah in the book of Genesis. We're not going to turn to Genesis because Peter tells us about her. Pick it up in verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, I don't know if you've read Genesis and the story of Abraham and Sarah. Let me just tell you something. Abraham is a Bible hero and a horrible husband. I mean, my goodness. You wanna be married to a bad guy. If if you're looking at your husband and going, man, this guy stinks, just read about Abraham. Because you know what Abraham did? He had this gorgeous wife. So when he went into a new place, he told his wife, here's what we're gonna do. They're gonna see you, and they're gonna kill me in order to have you. So here's what we're gonna do. Just tell them you're my sister, and then whoever comes and takes you, we'll just let him have you. And they did it. 
And she ends up married to this other dude who is a king, and God protects her and says to the king, if you touch her, I'm going to kill you. Give her back to her husband. And the king comes back and goes, what are you doing? You said she was your sister. He's like, well, you know, my aunt's cousin's third cousin's brother used to be connected, and she's kind of my sister. And, and he goes, just take your wife and get out of here. And, and she like, whew. And so they go to the next place. And what does he say? Say you're my sister. And it happens again. He gave his wife away twice. On top of that, as she got older and could not have children and her self-esteem was falling because of that and her heart was broken because of that, she comes to him and says, hey, I noticed how you've been looking at my cute young uh, servant. Why don't you just go ahead and sleep with her? And he goes, okay. That sounds like a great idea. Okay, so here's my point. Abraham was a man of faith, but Abraham was also a knucklehead, right? And Sarah is used as the New Testament example of godly wives because her husband was a knucklehead and she still submitted to him. And guess what? God had her back. And God gave her that child. And God gave her an inheritance. And God gave her a blessing beyond words. And, and so, so he, talks to, he talks about servants. He talks about Jesus. He talks about wives. All of these examples of submission. And then in verse 7, husbands don't get off the hook either. Verse 7, you husbands. Go ahead, wives. Elbow your husband. Tell him, wake him up. Make sure he's listening. You husbands... In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, you're going to think that what I'm about to say, I'm saying to be funny. I'm not. I'm dead serious. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say... Husbands, understand your wives. Because God would never command us to do the impossible. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. Husbands are never going to fully understand their wives. You know why? Because they're women. And, And when it comes to understanding women... Men have an entire history throughout the history of the world of being entirely clueless. So this idea that we're supposed to understand our wives is beyond us. And and I say that with all sincerity, and here's why. I know it's not popular to say these days. So again, emails to godatheaven.com, not to me. I know that this is not popular to say these days, But believe it or not, men and women are different. I don't know if you've noticed. Men and women are different, and not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, down to every cell in our bodies. Men and women 
are different, created by God for the gender assigned to them. And so that is why God designed it and how God designed it. Husbands and wives are designed to complement one another. They're designed to fit together. They're designed to fill one another's needs. They're designed to cover one another's weaknesses and bring, uh, bring uh, strength into their own lives. That's how he designed it. What did he say in Genesis after he created Adam? It is not good for man to be alone. Guys, if he never said that, there would just be piles of laundry all over the earth. <laughs> just... Empty pizza boxes and, you know, stuff spread all over the place. It is not good for men to be alone. And so he creates women. And guess what? It is not good for women to be alone. And, and this is not a statement about singleness because God uh, creates some people with a vision of singleness for their lives because of the plan that he has for them. It's not knocking singleness, but it is saying that the family is the center of community and that God brings a husband and a wife together because they complement one another. So I want to say this in all sincerity, husbands, do not beat yourself up for not fully understanding your wife, but make every effort to live with her in an understanding way. In other words, respect her feelings, even when her feelings don't make any sense to your logic. In other words, value her perspective, even when her perspective is different than your perspective. In other words, praise God for what makes her different than you. That's what attracted you to her in the first place. And husbands, you better take seriously God's command to honor her and treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of God. You may be physically stronger than your wife, but she is not less precious than you. She is not less valuable than you. She is not less significant than you. And God calls you to treat her with all the love, all the honor, all the respect that is due her as a child of God. In every one of these examples, We're talking about the practical application of one simple biblical principle, be submissive. And for husbands, it is absolutely as essential that you be submissive as it is that wives be submissive. This is not a pecking order. This is about children of God working together as one. When the Bible says that God created Eve and he brought Adam and Eve together, it says that the husband shall leave his father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. And in Ephesians, after Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, he says to husbands, if you're one with your wife, why would you ever mistreat her? Because when you mistreat her, you're mistreating yourself. It's foolish. So in every one of these examples, we're talking about submission to God. Look at verse eight. To sum up, all of you, you might wanna circle those three words. All of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Notice that when we book in 
chapter 2, verse 21, with chapter 3, verse 9, they both say you're called for this purpose. This, this submission is a calling from God. It's a high calling from God. You're called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. That sums it up. We're all to submit to God by being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Men, women, children, bosses, workers, leaders, followers, whoever you are, whatever your station in life, the greatest sign of spiritual maturity in the Christian is that of humble submissiveness in love. You were called for this very purpose. Submissiveness is a very high calling. It's God's will for all of us. And it's through submissiveness that we will inherit the great blessings that our Heavenly Father has set aside for us and that Jesus died on purpose to give us. Let me just read the rest of this section, verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. You're called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing for the one who deserves, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you, pres- if you prove zealous for what is good? See, Peter takes one more shot at my yeah, but. He says, I know you're afraid to be submissive because what if you get hurt? And he says, who is there to harm you? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's stand and pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the truth that is there. And I want to confess that I don't always like everything I read. The stuff about submissiveness, God, is hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to apply in my life, and it's hard for me to teach to the church. But I know it's truth, and I know that you are good, and I know that you have our best in mind, and I know that your word promises that if we will put our trust in you, you will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And so, God, I want to pray for each one of us because I know that for some of us, our hearts are struggling right now. We're thinking about ways that we have been hurt. We're thinking about situations in which we have been in danger. And we're thinking, I don't think I want to trust people again. Lord, help us to trust you so much that we will submit where appropriate and that we will flee when appropriate, that we will hold boundaries when appropriate but that all of that would come out of a spirit of submissiveness. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever walk of life, make us submissive, Lord, that we might experience the amazing grace that Jesus died to give us. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name, amen.